This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussion of kidnapping and harassment that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III lay on the ground, blindfolded, hands and feet tied, listening to the whispers around him. He had no idea where he was or who had grabbed him from the street in Rome six hours earlier. To make things worse, he was still drunk. A sea breeze cooled his face, and he thought he might be on top of a cliff. He wondered if his kidnappers were going to throw him off it. But then, one of the men untied him and taped his blindfold in place. Another of the men told Paul that from now on, no one would speak to him. If he wanted anything, he could ask for it. They would reply with claps. One clap for yes, two claps for no. And then the kidnappers pulled the teenager to his feet and led him across what felt like a field. As he stumbled forward blindly, Paul was heartened. If the men wanted to communicate with him, maybe they weren't going to kill him after all. But as they hiked along, Paul's confidence started to falter. He remembered the stories he'd heard about the southern Italian mobsters. If the rumors were true, killing him was far from the worst these men would do. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, so let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our final episode on the kidnapping of 16-year-old oil heir J. Paul Getty III. On July 10, 1973, at the end of a night out in Rome, the teenaged partygoer was grabbed by members of the Calabrian crime organization known as the Indrangheta and driven into the rugged mountains of southern Italy. It would be days before anyone would take Paul's disappearance seriously. Even after the Andrangheta demanded $17 million in ransom. In the following months, as negotiations dragged on, Paul found himself at the mercy of brutal and desperate men willing to do anything to get their payout. Last week, we got to know the young John Paul Getty III and the famously wealthy Getty family. We looked at the turbulent socio-political situation in Italy in the late 60s and early 70s and the Ndrangheta's rise to prominence. This week, we'll follow Paul's months of captivity in the Calabrian Mountains. We'll take a look at the different players involved in negotiations, examine why the kidnapping was initially believed to be a hoax, and dig into the media circus that surrounded the case. Around 3 a.m. on the morning of July 10, 1973, teenage hippie, artist, and oil heir J. Paul Getty III, known as Paul, was thrown into a car and driven six hours south into the mountainous region of Calabria. En route, his kidnappers tied him up, blindfolded him, and fed him alcohol instead of water to keep him disoriented. By the time the car stopped and Paul was pulled out and dumped on the ground, he had no clue where he was and no idea who his kidnappers were. He had long run with a questionable crowd of drug lords and petty criminals in Rome, people known as the Malavita, and his first thought was that it might be a misunderstanding with one of them. Sure, Paul had often talked about planning his own kidnapping, but he didn't intend to actually go through with it. It was little more than a lark. As he lay on the grass high in the mountains, waiting to find out the kidnappers' plans for him, reality started to sink in. These men weren't messing around, and they weren't amateurs. They set off walking across what Paul thought might be farmland. After a while, they put him in another car. Before long, they pulled him out of the first car and made him walk for a while before bundling him into another car. This process repeated all day. Paul wasn't sure whether they were actually going anywhere. When he asked for food, that request was at least granted. The pasta and refried beans the men gave him wasn't especially good but it was hot, which Paul found surprising. He'd assumed that he was in the middle of nowhere, but hot food meant that there was a town or village nearby. This strange routine continued for several days. Through his blindfold, Paul could tell that they were mostly walking at night and sleeping during the day. 
but otherwise, there seemed to be little reason behind their movements. He supposed that the men guarding him weren't the men in charge. In fact, they seemed just as scared as Paul was, albeit for different reasons. More likely than not, they were awaiting orders from their superiors, who were still figuring out the best way to capitalize on the situation. And then, one night, after four or five days, it started to rain. Subordinates or not, the kidnappers had no interest in getting soaked. So they took Paul to some sort of shed or hut. It wasn't especially warm, and it had a dirt floor, but it was dry. One of the men ripped off Paul's blindfold, forgetting it was taped to his head. Surprised, the teenager yelped in pain, and the man's comrades immediately started to panic, chastising the man for hurting their captive. Paul finally allowed himself to believe that, as uncomfortable as the situation might be, these men weren't going to hurt him. Paul squinted as his eyes adjusted to the dark hut. He realized that, for the first time in days, he could see. He tried to focus his eyes struggling to acclimate. After a few minutes, he saw that the one-room hut was lit by a fire. There were five short men in woolen ski masks prowling and sitting nervously. One of them was making pasta. Another of the men confirmed Paul's suspicion, telling him they'd just been hired for the job, that they'd had nothing to do with his initial kidnapping. The man warned Paul not to do anything stupid. Paul heeded the warning. He realized that, with his blindfold off, he risked seeing one of the guards' faces. And if he saw one of their faces, it wouldn't matter that they were just hired thugs. They wouldn't hesitate to kill him. Paul quickly turned toward the wall. He hoped that his captors would see his willingness to cooperate and go easy on him. He didn't want to do anything stupid. He just wanted to get home, to his fiancée, Martine, and to his mom and siblings. Well, luckily, the kidnappers were just as eager to get home. But to do that, they'd need Paul's help. One of the men gave him a pen and paper and dictated a letter for the teenager to write to his mother, apprising her of his kidnapping and the seriousness of his captors. When it came time to address the envelope, Paul gave the men Martine and Yuta's address. He figured the twins would be more capable of dealing with these mobsters than his mother would be, and was afraid of what would happen if he gave them her address. He handed over the letter with trepidation, hoping it would get him home soon. Back in Rome, though, things weren't going according to plan. When Paul hadn't returned home after his night out, Martine had spent the day frantically running around town looking for him. No one seemed to know where he was, but they weren't concerned. Paul was unreliable and prone to last-minute trips. Martine doubted he would have left without telling her, but she didn't know where else to look. Sometime that day or the next, his mother, Gail, who still had no idea he was missing, got an unexpected phone call. It was from an Italian man with a Calabrian accent who told her to call him Cinquanta, Italian for 50. He 
He told her he was a spokesman for a group of kidnappers who were holding her son hostage. Gail didn't initially believe this was true. She hadn't seen Paul in a few days, but she was sure he was fine. Hoping to put an end to the conversation, Gail told Cinquanta she had no money, which was true. Like the rest of the Getty clan, Gail got little to no money from the patriarch, especially since separating from her husband, Paul Jr. She had been working, but was only making enough to support herself, her four children, and her ex-husband's child from a second marriage, whom she'd taken in after his wife's untimely death. All of this was news to Cinquanta, who continued to threaten her. Gail felt a growing sense of dread, sensing Cinquanta's disappointment. He told her not to go to the police, that Paul would be fine if she just followed his instructions. He would be in touch again with more information. And then he hung up. Gail didn't know what to do. She called her ex-husband, and the two cried over the phone together. But it quickly became clear that outside of showing sympathy, Paul Jr. was going to be useless. He couldn't return to Italy for fear of arrest over cocaine possession, and he refused to ask his father for money. All Gail could do was wait. On the morning of July 13th, the newspapers ran a story about Paul's disappearance, but it treated the whole thing lightly, quoting both Gail and the police as suspecting it might be a hoax. Gail was furious. She had spoken to neither the press nor the police. In addition to Cinquanta's demands that she not go to the police, she wanted to keep the whole affair quiet so she could only suppose that the kidnappers had gone to the press and had lied about her reaction. Presumably, these kidnappers went to the press in order to capitalize on the Getty name and raise the case's profile. According to experts at Hostage US, press attention often raises the value of a hostage, so the kidnappers going to the press was, in this case, a negotiation tactic. But media attention is a double-edged sword. It often inspires false leads, which divert resources and bog down negotiations, as would ultimately happen in the Getty case. Gail was frantic. While the police and the press seemed to find Paul's disappearance entertaining, she was growing more and more concerned that she'd had no further communication from the kidnappers. The police started to interview Paul's friends, but none of them knew anything. Some people claimed to have seen him at bars and clubs on the night he disappeared, but that wasn't helpful. In fact, the information they were getting only reinforced what the police knew of the 16-year-old heir, that he spent most of his time partying and associating with both the Malavita and politically active artists. Their initial theory that it might be a hoax started to take hold. Unbeknownst to anyone in Rome, The kidnappers were keeping tabs on the news, and when they saw that no one was taking the kidnapping seriously, they were furious. After Paul had been missing for a week or so, his letter arrived at Martine and Yuta's apartment. Martine ripped it open and quickly scanned it. When she saw that it was addressed to his mother and that it said not to go to the police, she and her sister went straight to Gail's apartment. But Gail wasn't home. 
and a misinformed concierge said that she might have moved. As Martine understood it, he thought Gail might have left Italy. The twins didn't know what to do. They couldn't believe that Gail would have left without them having heard, and especially at such a crucial moment. So they waited, and the hours ticked by. Finally, the two scared young women decided they had to do something. They were worried about going to the police, as the letter instructed them not to. But someone needed to do something, and Gail still wasn't home. So the twins turned to the police. But when officers read the letter, they thought it was a joke. That night, police visited Gail. It turned out she'd been at the movies when Martine and Yuta had been looking for her, trying to momentarily distract herself. She was furious to learn the twins had gone to the police when the letter explicitly said not to. But she was far more concerned when she read Paul's letter, which said Paul's life would be in danger if she didn't follow instructions. If she took too long to pay the ransom, the kidnappers would cut off one of Paul's fingers and send it to her. Panicked, Gail begged the police for help. But instead of reassuring her, the officer asked her about her finances and whether anyone in her ex-husband's family had ever discussed kidnapping. Only the next morning did she understand this line of questioning when the Italian newspapers published both Paul's letter and a story about how his mother had been at the movies when it arrived. It insinuated that Gail was broke and that the whole kidnapping was a ploy for her to get money. Not only was this hurtful to Gail, who was terrified for her son's life, but it made her the perfect villain for the sensationalist Italian press. They could only do so much with the story of a missing party boy, but throw in a belligerent mother and some family drama, and the papers could print headlines for months. But Gail wasn't the only one outraged by the press coverage. The kidnappers grew angry as they watched their job turn into an international joke. They wanted to get real money out of this, And that wouldn't happen if no one took them seriously. It was time for them to show they meant business. In a moment, the kidnappers lay out their demands, and Paul begins to fear for his life. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In late July 1973, more than two weeks after 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III had been kidnapped from the streets of Rome, his kidnappers finally made their demands. Gail's lawyer, Iacovoni, received a call from the kidnappers' representative, Cinquanta. Cinquanta told the lawyer to expect a letter with instructions for the delivery of the money, even though the kidnappers hadn't yet named their price. 
In anticipation, Gail was desperately trying to gather funds, but she hadn't succeeded in getting more than a couple hundred thousand dollars. Finally, two notes arrived. The first was made of cut-out letters glued onto a piece of paper. It demanded an exorbitant sum. Ten billion lira, or between 17 and 18 million dollars. That would be worth more than 100 million dollars today. The second letter was in Paul's handwriting. It laid out explicit instructions for how Gail alone should deliver the money. The kidnappers would kill him if she deviated in any way from the plan. Gail was beside herself. She didn't have that kind of money. The only person who could get them anywhere close to $17 million was the notoriously stingy J. Paul Getty Sr., who wouldn't even take her calls. But J. Paul Getty wasn't ignoring his grandson's kidnapping. The international press wouldn't let him. And he told them what he wouldn't tell Gail. He wouldn't pay the ransom as a matter of principle. He had 14 grandchildren. If he paid, he risked all of them being kidnapped. The news sent a shockwave through Italy, a culture that leaned heavily on family. The Italian press and public couldn't believe that a grandfather wouldn't help free his grandson from brutal kidnappers. It only reinforced the family drama narrative that the newspapers were peddling. Behind the scenes, though, J. Paul Getty Sr. was less callous. Within a few days of his grandson's disappearance, he sent a fixer to Rome. This man, Fletcher Chase, was a CIA veteran who fancied himself a savvy James Bond type. He saw his job as to find out if the kidnapping was real. If so, he would get little Paul back with minimal financial damage to J. Paul Getty Sr. From the beginning, though, Chase believed the kidnapping was a hoax, and his conversations with the police in Rome only reinforced this hunch. The more he learned of Paul, the more he became convinced that the teenager had gotten involved with Rome's criminal underworld and needed money, and he suspected Gail was calling the shots. He fed these theories back to his employer, and it seemed the paranoid patriarch readily agreed with him. If the kidnapping was a hoax, J. Paul Getty definitely didn't want to set the precedent of paying out ransoms. To a certain extent, he hoped the kidnapping was fake because he was terrified of the mafia. No one yet knew that Paul's kidnappers were part of the Calabrian Andrangheta, but even if they had, the oil magnate would have lumped them in with the Sicilian Mafia. In fact, this was the real reason he wouldn't take Gail's calls. He had become exceedingly paranoid in his old age and genuinely believed that even taking a phone call from the Mafia would lead to his death. It's unclear how he believed talking to Gail would do this, but to be safe, he decided that all dealings on the case would go through his fixer, Chase. However, J. Paul Getty did contact his reclusive addict son, Paul Jr., and offered to give him the ransom as an advance on his future inheritance. But Paul Jr. couldn't bring himself to spend the money. He wouldn't sacrifice his future comfort to save his own son. 
to the rest of the world, and most importantly to the kidnappers, it looked like one of the richest families on earth would rather let one of their own die than part with their fortune. The kidnappers were horrified and angry. They almost felt offended at having to negotiate with such callous and heartless people. Oddly, the Getty family drama worked as an accidental negotiating tactic. Hostage negotiator Leslie Edwards says that most hostage takers are business people who have an expectation for how a negotiation will go and what they'll get out of it. This was certainly the case with the Andrangheta, who had been treating kidnapping for ransom as a business for several years. But as wealthy American foreigners, the Gettys were different from the Italian people the Andrangheta normally kidnapped. When the negotiations didn't go according to plan, it drastically shifted their expectations. The Andrangheta were used to families who took them seriously and paid quickly. So they'd only budgeted for a month or so of expenses. They hadn't counted on a prolonged hostage situation. As the Gettys argued amongst themselves and publicly refused to pay, they inadvertently lowered the demand for Paul, and subsequently the price the kidnappers could ask. And so, as the weeks passed, Paul's guards and their bosses started to get nervous and took their frustrations out on the teenage captive. They moved Paul regularly, spending a week in a shepherd's hut before uprooting him and making him hike for hours to reach an outdoor campsite. They kept him blindfolded at almost all times and often chained up, threatening to kill him if he looked at them or tried to escape. The men were capricious, some were nice, chatting with him about their families and how little they were being paid for the job, while others would shout at him and try to intimidate him. They fed him pasta with cognac or wine to keep him woozy and confused. And whenever they felt they weren't making progress in the negotiations, they'd force him to write another letter begging for his life. Early on, they brought him a radio so he could maintain a connection to the outside world. But Paul found himself mostly glued to the details of his own case, which dominated the Italian news. It sounded to Paul like his family didn't care that he'd been kidnapped and that the police weren't taking the situation seriously. He understood his grandfather's hesitance about paying a ransom, but he was hurt that no one seemed anxious to rescue him. Over the course of the summer, his kidnappers reinforced this perspective, and in doing so, they began to build a rapport with him. Some of them said they felt bad for this kid whose family didn't seem to love him. One of them talked to him about how they were all victims here, stuck in the countryside because his family wouldn't set him free. As unhappy as Paul was, and despite the terrible situation at hand, he began to relate to these men. He felt like they were his friends. But no relationship could protect Paul as the kidnappers began to run out of money. By September, the men were on edge. One of the men with whom he developed a rapport suggested that he and Paul strike a deal separately in order for him to release Paul sooner and not have to share the money. Shortly thereafter, one of the other men became convinced that Paul had seen his face and started to get paranoid. 
the others held a sort of trial in order to find out if Paul had seen a glimpse of the captor. Paul protested that he hadn't seen anything, but given they threatened to kill him if he had, there's no reason he would admit to having seen the man's face. Though they let Paul live, he never heard the man's voice again. After that, something changed. In mid-September, a new set of harsher, crueler guards joined them. They moved Paul to a cave even further south and tried to intimidate him by messing with his sleep schedule and threatening to kill him for the smallest infractions. They played Russian roulette against his forehead and laughed at his fear. It had become clear that new, more professional mafiosos had joined the operation, hoping to get better results. In the meantime, back in Rome, Gale, Chase, and Iacovoni were so inundated by information and harassed by the press that it was hard to tell if anything was moving forward. In mid-August, the kidnappers had reduced the ransom demand to 3 billion lira, or about $5.5 million, which would be about $31 million today. Chinquanta's calls had increased in frequency and urgency. Every time, he threatened Paul's mutilation or death if they didn't get the money right away. By this point, a month and a half after Paul's disappearance, the case had become an international sensation. Every day, people called and sent letters from around the world saying they knew something or had seen Paul. Chase insisted upon following up on every lead that allowed him to get out into the field and feel like a spy. Meanwhile, Gale, who developed a rapport with Cinquanta, felt sure most of the leads were fakes. To make matters worse, Chase was hurting the negotiations. He didn't speak Italian and didn't trust Iacovoni, so he would insist upon yelling at Cinquanta in a mix of English and Spanish. Not only was Cinquanta insulted, but he correctly felt Chase was trying to cheat him and soon refused to speak to anyone but Gale. Nothing was moving forward except time. Chase continued to try and outsmart the kidnappers, whom he still believed were collaborating with Paul. The police made no real progress and continued to support the hoax narrative in order to compensate for their failure. Iacovoni would tell the kidnappers they were getting their money, but that it was taking a long time. Cinquanta would get impatient and make threats. Gale would beg for them to return her son. Chase would race around town after ghosts and spend the family's money on false leads. Gale wanted to negotiate in person, but the others talked her out of it. Finally, in the middle of October, Cinquanta said his bosses were fed up. If Gale didn't come to meet them and give them the money immediately, they were going to cut off Paul's ear. But the kidnappers had been making threats like this for three months. There was no reason to believe they were serious this time. And so when Chase convinced her that the meeting was a trap and she shouldn't go, Gale wasn't worried. She told Cinquanta that she couldn't trust them not to kidnap her. But they were wrong to assume the kidnappers were all bluster. 
the Njongeta had invested a lot of money in Paul, and the men in charge were ready to do whatever it took to get their payout. And if that meant violence, in order to get the Getty family to take them seriously, then so be it. Coming up, the kidnappers turn violent. Now, back to the story. By the morning of October 21st, 1973, 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III had been held captive by the Calabrian Andrangheta in the rugged mountains of southern Italy for more than three months. His father and grandfather had both publicly refused to pay the ransom. To make matters worse, almost the entirety of Italy, including the police, believed that the kidnapping had been staged by the teenager to get money from his family. The kidnappers had had enough. The men guarding Paul told him that his mother had insulted them by suggesting they weren't trustworthy. They would have to follow through on their threats to get the ransom. By that point, Paul had developed a certain amount of sympathy for some of his guards, and he understood their perspective. He realized that it might take something drastic to make his family take the kidnapping seriously and pay up. One morning, the guards trimmed the hair around his right ear and cleaned the skin with alcohol. Paul realized he was about to lose his ear. He felt nauseous and began to shiver with anxiety. He spent the whole day waiting for the inevitable. The next morning, the men woke him and started to cook steak. Paul ate as much as he could. His body would be losing a lot of iron. After he'd had a chance to digest, they sat him down on a chopping block and adjusted his blindfold. They gave him a handkerchief to bite on and held down his arms and legs. And then one of them put a razor to his right ear and sliced it off in one go. The pain didn't hit immediately. The men cleaned the wound, bandaged Paul up, gave him penicillin and tetanus shots, and laid him down on his bed, just as the pain and the bleeding started. Paul bled nonstop for at least three days. He was hemorrhaging from the blood vessels around his missing ear and was too weak to move. He vomited constantly and screamed in agony. The guards began to panic. They had no idea what to do. They couldn't let him die. They tried to get him to walk around, to keep his body working, but he could barely stand. All he could do was lie uselessly in bed. After 10 days of this, the guards began to worry they'd been in one place too long and decided they had to move their hostage, regardless of his weakness. In the meantime, the men in charge tried to preserve the ear in formaldehyde and put it in a plastic bag, along with a lock of Paul's hair. They packaged it all up and dropped it in the mail. Now everyone would finally believe that Paul was in danger and the Gettys would pay. Cinquanta called Gail and told her what had happened. He told her Paul was hemorrhaging and she needed to pay them immediately in order to get him to a hospital. But Gail didn't believe him. She figured, like everything else, it was a ploy. And then he started to call and ask if Paul's ear had arrived. It hadn't. 
and the delay only reinforced Gail's belief that the kidnappers were lying to her. Weeks stretched on. The kidnappers couldn't believe it. They'd finally taken a violent, irreversible step, and even that wasn't getting them taken seriously. They thought that perhaps Gail was lying to them, though they couldn't understand why. What neither party realized was that there was a huge postal strike in Naples, meaning that almost no mail from the South was going anywhere. Paul's ear was stuck in a sorting warehouse somewhere. Finally, on November 10th, three weeks after the ear had been cut off, it arrived at one of the newspaper's offices in Rome. The paper called both the police and Gail, and Gail was quickly able to identify both the ear and the hair as her son's. As sick as Gail felt over what had happened to her child, she hoped that at last this horror would galvanize J. Paul Getty and Paul Jr. into paying the ransom. But nothing seemed to change. When Chinquanta next called, his panic had reached a fever pitch. Not only was Paul not doing well, he said, but his bosses would cut off Paul's other ear if they weren't paid soon. Gail realized that Paul would die if they didn't get him out, and so she lied, telling Chinquanta she had the money and just had to get it from London. By this point, the ransom had come down to approximately $3.2 million. But of course, Gail didn't have that money, and she still only had one place to get it from. So she called her father in California, panicked, and asked him to talk to J. Paul Getty Sr. Gail's father must have finally gotten through to the patriarch because in early December, Chase heard from J. Paul Getty that he would pay $2.2 million in ransom, the maximum tax-deductible amount. His son, Paul Jr., would have to pay the remaining $1 million. Paul Jr. initially refused, though he eventually borrowed the remaining million dollars from his father, agreeing to pay it back at 4% interest. The ransom was finally ready. On December 6th, as the worst winter in recent memory set in, Chase got the money out of the bank and prepared it for a handover. But of course, even that couldn't go smoothly. Chase wanted to handle all of the logistics, but he only succeeded in angering the kidnappers. So Gail had to arrange everything with Chinquanta, who gave her very specific instructions. She was to drive a car with two white suitcases on a rooftop luggage rack and go south from Rome towards Palermo. She was to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning and drive down the highway at exactly 80 kilometers per hour. She was to have the money ready in sacks. When two pieces of gravel hit the windshield, she was to pull over, take the money out of the car, and drive away immediately. But Chase wouldn't let Gail drive. He still somehow suspected her of having something to do with the kidnapping conspiracy and wouldn't let her anywhere near the money. Either he drove or no one drove. Gail had no choice, and she told the kidnappers as much. They would have to be happy with Chase driving the ransom to the drop-off. 
On the morning of December 10th, 1973, Chase set out, driving south along the Autostrada and right into a storm. He drove all day through the snow and ice, but the signal to stop never came. And so he turned around and headed back to Rome, arriving home in the middle of the night. The kidnappers called Gale, furious. In the storm, they hadn't seen the car and were convinced Chase had stood them up. Gale calmed them down and managed to convince them to try again in two days. On December 12th, Chase set out again. Around 2.30 p.m., the gravel hit the windshield. Chase pulled the car off the highway onto a side road. Chase said a masked man emerged from the brush, waving a gun. Two more men appeared, both carrying guns. Chase carefully got out of the car and removed the bags of cash, setting them by the side of the road. The men watched him for any sign that he might come at them, but he got back in the car and drove straight back to Rome. But Gail couldn't relax yet. When the phone rang that evening, she ran for it. Cinquanta confirmed that they'd received the money and they would be returning Paul. But when she asked when, he told her she would just have to trust him. And then he hung up. Paul, of course, had no idea the ransom had finally been paid. He was trapped in a barn in the Calabrian Mountains, sick and weak from blood loss. The kidnappers had moved him several times in the last few weeks, and he was confused and tired, struggling to focus. They told him several times that he was going to be released soon, but he didn't believe them. But then, on the evening of December 14, 1973, five months after he'd been kidnapped, his guards made him get up. They dressed him in warm clothes and led him out the door into the sleet. They led the weak, blindfolded teenager through the snow and rain to a car, then set off in a caravan. Over the next few hours, they changed cars, doubled back on themselves, and did everything they could to lose anyone who might be tailing them. And then they pulled over, walked him through a field, and told him he was free. Paul was bewildered. He didn't know where he was or where to go. It was the middle of the night. It was freezing cold, and he was still recovering from losing his ear. The men said they'd call his mother and tell her where he was, so he should wait there. And then they shook his hand and said goodbye. They got into their cars and drove off, leaving the 17-year-old alone in the Calabrian countryside. As soon as the cars were gone, Paul took off his blindfold. Determined not to freeze to death, he stumbled down the hill and onto the empty highway and set off along the side of the road toward a gas station. There weren't many cars, but he tried to flag down those he saw. None of them stopped, surely disturbed by the sight of the gaunt, bedraggled young man with a bloody bandage around his head. In the gas station, the attendant wouldn't let him use the phone, so he continued on. While passing through the town of Lago Negro, he managed to get a truck to stop. He told the driver that he was J. Paul Getty III. The man may have believed him, but 
instead of offering him a ride, drove off. The Indrangheta controlled the area, and no doubt the locals were afraid of them. But the truck driver must have called the police because the local Carabinieri station got a call after 2 a.m. that Paul Getty had been spotted along the highway. The captain drove out to where the driver had seen him. The captain spotted the wet, malnourished teenager by the side of the road and pulled over. Paul immediately got in, grateful to be out of the storm. The captain looked at him and said he hadn't believed until that moment that Paul had even been kidnapped. At the station, Gail had to wade through a crowd of reporters to get to her son. They were finally reunited in the early hours of the morning on December 15th. The media fascination with the case continued for a number of months through the arrest and trial of several men accused of being involved in the kidnapping. Even after the trial, the case was regularly mentioned in the Italian press, as the Andrangheta continued ransom kidnappings for nearly two more decades. As for Paul Getty, he never fully recovered from his ordeal. On the day he returned home, he tried to call his grandfather to thank him, but the patriarch reportedly refused to take his call. In the weeks to come, Paul recuperated in a Swiss spa and had a prosthetic ear attached, courtesy of Getty Money. Upon returning to Rome, he found himself no longer comfortable there and began dividing his time between California and London. The next year, just before his 18th birthday, he and Martine got married. Although, as a result of an obscure stipulation meant to prevent his sisters and cousins from being exploited by older men, getting married at such a young age meant that Paul couldn't inherit his family's money. Well, this didn't bother Martine, but it clearly bothered Paul. Between the lack of money and PTSD from his ordeal, Paul began to suffer from drug and alcohol addiction within a year of his kidnapping. He rapidly burned through what money he did have, and like his father, spiraled out of control. He and Martine had a child together, but Paul was in no position to take care of someone else. The couple began to drift apart. Martine was still invested in her filmmaking and art, while Paul's addiction ate up his time, money, and focus. Martine and Gail tried to get him into rehab, but he broke out, having no interest in getting clean. Finally, in 1981, at the age of 24, barely seven years after his kidnapping, Paul overdosed and suffered a stroke. He survived, but was left a quadriplegic. For the remaining 30 years of his life, Martine and Gail took care of Paul full-time. As for the kidnappers, only a couple members of the clan responsible for the kidnapping were convicted. But it was obvious to Italian law enforcement that they were just taking the fall. The bosses who'd planned the whole operation were never implicated or brought to justice. In fact, not only were those men never caught and charged, but they were able to use the money they got from the Gettys to grow the Andrangheta into one of the most dangerous and powerful criminal organizations in the world. It became a powerhouse in international drug and weapons trafficking and remains as much today.
Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We will be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Hostage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Hostage was written by Kate Thorman and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. Hostage.